thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I am delighted to have you with me today, and I hope you'll enjoy today's um, show. And if you do, let me encourage you, please let other people know about this podcast. I don't, I don't know that there are too many out there that are, are like this one, and uh, it would sure be great if we could reach more, more people. Um, now, before I get into the substance of today's podcast, uh, one of the things I'm going to be talking about is a brief that I filed with the Iowa Supreme Court on the issue of abortion on behalf of uh, the organization I run here in Tennessee, the Family Action Council of Tennessee and Alliance for Law and Liberty, and 31 other organizations uh, with which we're allied that are in other states and our National Ally Family Policy Alliance. And the issue in that case is abortion. So it's a perfect opportunity to address the question, asked my uh, one of our listeners last week that I didn't get to, namely, how do you go about trying to restore a biblical cosmology within our culture and particularly uh, as the foundation for our law, which is, of course, the focus of this podcast. So um, if you want a copy of that brief, so you can read it for yourself, it's not very long, um, just send an email to us at info at factn.org. That's info at factn.org. And just ask for the Supreme Court brief or the Iowa Supreme Court brief. What I, what I hope to accomplish today in this episode is to show the difference between the brief that I filed and how it goes about trying to restore a biblical cosmology underneath our law and the Attorney General's brief, which doesn't touch on matters of cosmology at all. Now, I, I do want to say this about the Attorney General's brief. Lawyers like to make the easiest and least controversial argument in support of their position that they can. And why do they like to do that? Because justices want the easiest and least controversial way out of a controversy, which is exactly what litigation is. So if you can give them something they can say that doesn't have them delve into anything more controversial than they have to, then, you know, uh, give them that. Give them the milk toast rather than... Uh, you know, a hearty steak, so to speak. But here's my observation about that. When we settle for narrow, and more procedural-based wins, when actually fundamental propositions are, are either gone or they're at issue and they need to be reestablished, we need to try to do that because we will run out of procedural-based wins at some point to cloak our righteous laws in and and then we begin to lose. And that's really why I filed the amicus brief that I did, because, uh, you know, as friends of the court, providing insight to the courts, we're not like parties. We don't win or lose. Uh, my position may win the day or it may not, but at least, you know, 
uh, our organization and that of the 32 other groups don't have a court judgment entered against them, you know, and that's, that's where the state is in a certainly different uh, posture. Now let's take a look at the two different ways to approach the issue of abortion. And let me just give you a little background that may be helpful for your understanding of what courts do. You know, we read the Supreme Court uh, finds a right to abortion or they find a right to same-sex marriage or whatever it may be, and, and all we typically know is what they did. They found a right, they didn't find a right. They reversed a case, they didn't reverse a case. But it would be helpful for you to know what is going on because some of what's going on is um, really uh, just not right. It's not constitutional, and it's uh, what I'd call unfair. It's an injustice to people, and you you ought to really appreciate what's playing underneath the surface in the court's review of statutes for their constitutionality. So here's generally what happens, is when somebody comes into court and complains that a statute violates the Constitution or a fundamental right that's somewhere hidden in the text or penumbras of the Constitution, the court has to first decide if they're right. Is there a constitutional point here at issue, right? And that's, of course, what the abortionists argue, is that there's a right to abortion in state constitutions. They've lost that argument at the federal level now with the reversal of Roe by Dobbs last year, but, but now they're going around to the states and trying to win in state courts, and where they can't, they then pass amendments to the state constitutions like they did last year in Michigan and just recently did in Ohio. So if the court decides that there's not a constitutional issue at stake, then they review the constitutionality of a statute based on what's called a rational basis standard of review. And, and what they mean by that is could a rational person determine that the statute accomplishes a legitimate legislative function? Okay, so for example, um, there's a dangerous curve in a small narrow road and in Iowa, and uh, let's let's say there are several of these kinds of roads, and and the state allows you to drive 40 miles an hour on these little small roads where these dangerous curves are. So they pass a statute thinking, you know, if we can save lives if we'll reduce the speed limit in these curves to um, from 40 to 25 miles an hour, and this the speed limit will change, you know, 100 yards out from the curve. Okay, something like that. And the court says, well, there's not any constitutional right to drive a certain speed. And uh, so, yeah, a rational person could think that reducing the speed limit would, would save lives. So no problem. That statute's fine. It's not implicating any constitutional right. And there's a reasonable basis for it. So, now, now sometimes there may not be a reasonable basis for a statute. And, for example, in Tennessee, um, we have from time to time tried to pass a statute to apply to some particular person or situation. And we start defining things down real narrowly. I remember once we passed a statute that 
exempted uh, persons from taking the state barber exam. But the exemption was so narrowly written that it only applied to one barber in one community across the whole state because he'd been cutting hair for like 45 years and had never gotten a license and technically he needed to have a license. So the statute said the licensing law doesn't apply to anybody who has um, cut hair for 45 years in a town that's not less than um, 500 people or more than 2,000 people and they were born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Well, you know, a court might say, there's really no rational basis for that statute. Why, 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 why'd you exempt one person? Now, again, there's not constitutional right there involved, obviously, but, but a court could look at that and say, there's not a rational basis for that. There are lots of other people who've cut hair for periods of time, maybe not 45 years, uh, but 40 years, let's say, and whatever else. And, and maybe they live in a slightly larger city. Why should, why should those other persons not be exempted from the barber exam? Okay, so I hope I've gone on long enough about that. But if there is a right to abortion, this is where things get a little jiggy here um, and, and not, not cool. What the courts begin to do then is to say, well, a constitutional right's involved, so we're going to apply a little tougher standard of review for the state now to have to make an argument that it's justified. You see, in the other case, um, the person would be arguing, um, they would have to make the argument for why something violates their rights. But once they determine there's a constitutional right, then the burden shifts to the state, and now you got to prove something, right? And the standard for proving that what you did is legitimate gets much tougher. So let me give you just um, a little example about that. You may recall, those of you who may have been alive when Justice Roberts was being um, considered for appointment to the Supreme Court, that he said, justices just call balls and strikes, right? And, and that's a great and that's a fine statement. But the question is, what constitutes the strike zone? Okay? And, and this concept of the strike zone is what I mean by the standard of judicial review. Where's the sweet spot that the law has to fit within for it to be constitutional and not violate a constitutional right? So using this baseball analogy, when I was playing baseball, and not very well, I might add, um, the strike zone was the portion over the home plate that went from the batter's armpits to the top of the knees. Okay, that's why Pete Rose liked to crouch down, right? Because his armpits got lower and the strike zone got smaller. And pitches outside that strike zone, they were balls. So uh, let's say that I'm playing in the major leagues and I'm just a second stringer, come off the bench, and they say, yeah, that's the strike zone for Fowler. And, you know, I, I'm not a good hitter and I strike out a lot. But let's say a major league star whose success is important to making lots of money for the home team and maybe for major league baseball in general. You know, they sell lots of his jerseys, whatever else. He comes up to the plate. Well, you know, the major league baseball and that team wants him to get a hit. And they want him to get good pitches to hit. 
because he's going to be preferred over me, right? So the strike zone gets smaller. Let's say it goes from his elbows instead of his armpits down to his knees. So that just means more pitches are going to have to be grooved to him than he can hit. So that's essentially what's going on in, in litigation when there's a constitutional issue. If, as I said, the legislature passes a, a, a different a change in the speeding law, that's a rational basis. But, you know, you pass a law uh, touching on the right to abortion, if the right to abortion is now part of the Constitution, the state strike zone gets a whole lot smaller, and it's easier for Planned Parenthood and the pro-aborts to get a hit, so to speak. So I hope that that makes sense. So standards of review are very important. Now, one of the things that I argued in the brief that I'm not going to get into today is that applying different standards of review to statutes that protect life violate the equal protection of the laws. Now, you might say, give me an example of laws that protect life. Okay, abortion protects the life of an unborn person, and a murder statute protects the life of a born person. But even more so, when you start saying, well, the abortion statute protecting the life of the unborn person is going to be reviewed much more stringently and harshly and carefully um, than a statute that prohibits a doctor from killing any other person in his office. Well, you can see now, you've treated unborn persons unequally to born persons, and I argue that violates the 14th Amendment. But but let's let's move on to focus on just what was going on in Iowa apart from the 14th Amendment, and I believe you'll see how, how um, I was making a cosmological argument and how that's different from the way the Attorney General argued it. So, the Attorney General did assert, and we're thankful for that, that there's no right to abortion in the state constitution, but not on any cosmological grounds pertaining to the nature of persons and what it means to be a person, what a human being is, what a person is. Instead, it was couched as a fight over how to interpret two different Iowa Supreme Court decisions, neither of which examined the question of what it means to be a person and what constitutes a person. So, really, the whole argument over this heartbeat bill is simply should it be reviewed under a rational basis test or, uh, in the parlance I've used, uh, with a tougher strike zone to favor abortion and make the state's defense of the law harder. That's, that's how it's being argued. Now, interestingly, the AG did cite a case in which the Iowa Supreme Court said this, and I found it really fascinating. Constitutions and courts should not be picking sides in divisive social and political debates unless some universal principle of justice stands on only one side of that debate. Abortion isn't one of those issues. No, I'm, I'm grateful that in one of those opinions that was said. It won the majority opinion. But, but notice what they said. Constitutions shouldn't be picking sides on divisive social and political debates. 
Think about that. Constitutions do pick sides on whatever it is they speak to, or else they don't mean anything. And it doesn't matter whether the issue winds up at some point becoming divisive or political. Whatever the Constitution speaks to, it speaks to, and it speaks to just one side of whatever that debate is. What's the point of having a Constitution if the minute something becomes controversial, uh, you just duck and say the Constitution doesn't speak to it at all? See, that's really what the Supreme Court did in Dobbs. They weren't asked whether abortion treats the life of an unborn person differently from the life of a born person. Uh, we didn't we didn't want to ask that question. Um, and, and so the court chose not to answer that question. See, that's not restoring any kind of cosmology because you're not talking about what it means to be human in, in the nature of the cosmos in which we live, right? So constitutions do cut off some political debates. And, and I actually like here one of the things Justice Gorsuch said about the right to a trial by jury in a 2020 opinion. And he, and he wrote this, and I just think it's good, so I want to read it to you. When the American people chose to enshrine that right in the Constitution, they weren't suggesting fruitful topics for future cost-benefit analyses. They were seeking to ensure that their children's children would enjoy the same hard-won liberty they enjoyed. As judges, it's not our role to reassess whether the right to a unanimous jury is important enough to retain. That was the issue. Well, you know, it doesn't make sense to keep doing this. I mean, the majority ought to be fine. You know, in certain kinds of cases, it's too expensive, blah, 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 blah. And, the, and, and of course, it's just saying no. That's what the Constitution required. We're not entitled to reassess the value of that right. He continues, with humility, we must accept that this right may serve purposes evading our current notice. I like that. We are entrusted to preserve and protect that liberty, not balance it away aided by no more than social statistics or whatever else you might throw in there. For example, um, women's access to the workplace or um, child care costs or whatever else could be used as justification, for example, for abandoning any kind of right to life. But, but my point in respect to what the Supreme Court said, uh, where we don't want to be deciding uh, controversial political things unless there's a universal principle of justice involved, and, and my point is, well, uh, that's exactly what's on the other side of the debate about abortion. And pro-life state attorney generals have not argued that point in court. Period. They just have it. So, I mean, no one argues. There's a fundamental right on the other side of the constitutional question being pressed by the abortionist. And the, namely, uh, the attorney general doesn't argue that the legislature was justly seeking to identify and secure the right to life recognized in the common law as an absolute or fundamental right protected by the Constitution. In fact, the due process clause, as I think I said last week, is predicated on the fact 
that there's a right to life, and that's why you can't take anybody's life away from them without passing a law describing what the wrong is that's that's at issue, and then according them a, a a procedural fairness. For instance, the right to a trial by jury and unanimous verdict if it's a certain kind of criminal case. Well, that's uh, that whole procedural. Uh, Guarantee is predicated on there is a right to life. It's implicit in in the very due process clause itself. Now, could that have been done in Iowa? Absolutely. And that's what I did based on both the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, but also under what the Iowa Supreme Court itself said about the right to life. And interestingly, uh, these cases aren't even cited by the Attorney General to bolster her claim that the more recent cases um, can't declare a right to abortion. In other words, no, no claim was made, even in a footnote, that the state's constitution cannot provide a right to abortion because it would violate the right to life, which is grounded in our understanding of what a person is. You see, that's where the cosmology begins to come into play. Cosmology is What kind of place is this, which would entail the question, what kind of creature are we? So let me tell you what the Iowa Supreme Court said about the life issue that I actually quoted in the brief. And I think you'll see that what I'm arguing does rest upon fundamental cosmological precepts. And in fact, some expressly declared, not just euphemistically alluded to, okay? And I'm going to close with this. So here's what the state Supreme Court of Iowa said in 1868, which happens to be the year the 14th Amendment was adopted. Quote, The common law is distinguished and is to be commended for its all-embracing and salutary solicitude for the sacredness of human life and the personal safety of every human being. So see, you can't even get into the argument that I was making last week. Well, human beings are not necessarily persons in the law. In fact, the Iowa Supreme Court goes on. This protecting paternal care, enveloping every individual like the air he breathes, not only extends to persons actually born, there we go, there we go, but for some purposes to infants in ventrice mere, which is Latin for in the mother's womb. The right to life, there's the express statement of the fundamental and absolute right at common law in an Iowa Supreme Court opinion. The right to life and to personal safety, which is the protection of our limbs, our bodies, our health, is not only sacred, in the estimation of the common law, but it is inalienable. That's why it's protected by due process of law. You can't just take it away because you happen to get on the wrong side of somebody, right? Now, that's a great statement, but then listen to this one. This is from an Iowa Supreme Court case from 1976, and it says, quote, constitutional or statutory provisions, but I want to focus here on the word constitutional. 
constitutional provisions do not repeal the common law by implication unless the intention to do so is plain. So the Iowa Supreme Court says the common law recognizes a fundamental right to life that is inalienable, that encompasses every human being, including the child in the mother's womb, and unless you, abortionists, can find something in the Constitution that trumped that, that expressly or by implication repealed it, then, you know, you can't have the right to abortion in the state Constitution. So I made that argument back to the court, just in case there's some justice that wants to talk about it in a dissent or concurring opinion. No, let's try to just cut that one off at the knees. Now, how did I go about arguing this in a way that is, is really trying to restore a biblical cosmology in a more express and overt way? Well, let me read to you a few of the paragraphs from the brief that I wrote. And I'll end with this, and I hope it will help you see a practical way in which a lawyer trying to argue in a Supreme Court, or in any court for that matter, can begin to argue again for a biblical cosmology. Here's what I wrote. State constitutional rights to abortion, whether created judicially or written into the text of those constitutions, and differing standards of statutory review, okay, so I'm talking about both points, the, the right itself and the, the standard of review, depending on whether the human life in the hands of a physician is born or unborn, dehumanize the unborn, denying the fundamental law that human beings are bearers of certain fundamental rights as persons as distinguished from other forms of animate life. State jurisprudence that requires more than a rational basis standard of review for abortion laws, as is entailed when constitutional rights are involved, depart from this fundamental law and understanding of persons on which the protections of the 14th Amendment are predicated. It makes judges policymakers and frustrates Amici's legislative advocacy for the life of unborn persons. You see, you're, you're treating some lives differently from others, and that frustrates our ability to treat all human beings as of one class or kind, not some are inferior or subordinate to others. Now, here's how I then back up that statement, which was in the summary of the argument, with citations to legal authorities. Because we have legal authorities on our side if we use them, just like I mentioned the Iowa Supreme Court decisions that nobody cited. So here's, here's what I wrote. At common law, persons were, quote, divided by the law into either natural persons or artificial. Natural persons are such as the God of nature formed us. In case there were any doubt as to whether absolute rights extend to unborn persons, Blackstone expressly mentioned them in his chapter on absolute rights. So when we're talking about absolute rights, and that's what Blackstone's talking about, who does he stick under there as having absolute rights? And he says, this is what he said in that chapter on absolute rights, and he makes clear that unborn human beings are among the persons who possess those rights. And here's the quote from Blackstone. Life 
is the immediate gift of God, a right inherent by nature in every individual. So you see, that's how I was going about trying to restore a biblical understanding of the cosmos as as one in which there are rights that exist independent of anything the judge says or anything the legislature says. And there can only be that kind of law and that kind of right in a cosmos that God has created. That's how you go about doing it. So I hope today has been helpful. And like I said, if you'd like a copy of the brief, send us an email to info at factn.org. And if you find this or any of our other podcasts helpful, it's your hope you'll share it with others. And um, I'll look forward to being with you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.